Welcome to the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship of McMinnville podcast. Founded in 2007, UUFM is a gathering place for people who embrace a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. We are located in the heart of Oregon's Willamette Valley wine country. Please visit us on the web at macuuf.org, M-A-C-U-U-F dot org. And if you are ever in or near the McMinnville area, don't hesitate to stop by and visit us. UUFM gathers in love and service for justice and peace. Well, Kathleen will give her sermon next, but I'm going to read her bio. Um, she has been a Unitarian Universalist since 2014. Her lifelong Wiccan and spiritual practice draws from many of the same sources as Unitarian Universalism, including mythology, Jungian archetypes, ancient and modern philosophy, and respect for the interdependent web of all life. The Unitarian Universalist Community Church of Washington County in Hillsboro, she volunteers on the worship team and helps lead their UU Pagans group. When she is not contemplating life's mysteries, she works as a technical writer and moonlights as a costume designer and seamstress. In her spare time, she reads voraciously and swims as often as she can. Kathleen, please. Thank you. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for welcoming me into all of your homes. I'm going to guess that some of you probably recently moved furniture around or carefully placed or removed objects from the space in front of your laptop or your webcam. If you're working from home these days, as I am, and video conferences are part of your daily life now, you've probably had that moment when you realized that your coworkers would be looking into your house. Does that camera show your bookshelf? What will they think of your book titles? Do you want your boss to see that political memoir or your lowbrow mystery novels or that book of erotica? Probably not. So you move the computer in front of your couch. Now they can see your classy painting and your nice lamp and the shelf with the Star Wars figurines. Not professional. Or maybe you want your coworkers to know that you're a bit of a nerd, except your boss is a Trekkie, wrong fandom. Does your sports memorabilia support the right team? Is the couch nice enough to show the CEO or will he see your working class discount furniture and decide you're not promotable? There's a blank wall in the kitchen, a neutral background, is that better? Or boring? Should I use a Zoom virtual background? How can I use my stuff to create my best possible image? None of this is new. Humans have used possessions to signal status ever since the first prehistoric man made a coat out of the hide of the woolly mammoth he had just hunted for food. Look at me, the powerful provider. I defeated this animal myself. Today, the woolly mammoth coat lives on in Louis Vuitton handbags, Rolex watches, expensive cars, and rose gold iPhones. The purpose is exactly the same. In the Victorian era, new serving utensils and tableware were invented specifically for upper-class households to signal to the others that they were up on the latest etiquette. Doesn't everyone know where to place the hollow-handled fish fork in relation to the citrus fruit spoon? This was when people regularly entertained at home. So neighbors, colleagues, and social rivals were constantly judging each other's stuff. Thanks to Zoom and FaceTime, here we are again. 
This may seem silly to worry about. Most UUs know that status symbols don't bring happiness. We also know that a lot of people don't have stuff they need. So we organize school supply drives and winter clothing collections. We give things to people who need them. Owning stuff isn't what makes you a good person. As true as that is, possessions are a language that can open or close doors to opportunities. When I was a recent college graduate living in Michigan, I couldn't get work at some companies because I didn't drive a new American car. The interviewer would always walk you out to the parking lot and look at your vehicle. Was it clean? Any political statements on the bumper? Was there a baby seat in the back? They can't ask you, but they can look for a baby seat. The big three car companies had employed generations of Michiganders, and they were cultures all unto themselves. And they all had family plans that allowed their employees' relatives to buy cars at a discount. An old beat-up Toyota was a sign that you didn't come from that background, and you probably wouldn't fit in here. An engineer friend finally told me to borrow a friend's car for job interviews. Learning the language of possessions to avoid being passed over for opportunities can be valuable. Having the right stuff has always been a cultural problem. But now we have a new problem. Too much stuff. We are awash in items we don't need that crowd up our precious living space and that were produced in ways that damage the earth. Whole industries now exist to help Americans deal with our stuff. Professional organizers, storage facilities, estate sale planners, junk haulers, the container store. As a whole generation retires and downsizes, the senior moving services and estate sale industries have expanded outside of their original affluent markets. Consultants who used to be called only when a very wealthy person downsized a large estate are now serving middle-class families whose houses are filled with several generations of family possessions. Clutter isn't good for the brain. In 2011, researchers at Princeton University published the results of a large study that clearly showed that clutter environments interfere with your concentration. Verbal and visual stimuli in your field of vision constantly compete for your brain's attention. If you're trying to do your taxes at a desk that's piled up with unread books, old magazines, toys, and to-do lists, you will be constantly distracted from the task and you'll probably make more mistakes. The same is true for any kind of work. Distracting stimuli is also why people spend more money when they shop online than when they shop in stores for the same items. You go online, you choose your items, you put them in your shopping cart, and then you see six more ads for other things that you may want. This is not accidental. As your brain processes the input of a new ad or a new suggested item to buy, your concentration is derailed, your, your, your mental bandwidth is used a little bit, and you have to fight to reconnect to what you were doing. Those online shopping sites are also gamified in the same way that casino games are, to trigger a dopamine response when you click on something to keep you shopping. eBay tells you when you buy something that you've won an auction. Who doesn't want to win something? It keeps you on the site. So what does all of our stuff mean during this pandemic? We're all home with our stuff, looking at it, tripping over it, reorganizing it, cleaning it. This is a fantastic time to take an inventory
inventory of our stuff and look at what it really means. For inspiration, I look to the great philosophers, George Carlin and Marie Kondo. George Carlin's most famous comedy routine, A Place for Your Stuff, is hysterical and mostly inappropriate for a church service. If you want to see it, there's always YouTube. But it contains a really famous line. Is your house just a place to keep your stuff while you go out and get more stuff? If you can answer that with a yes, you may not be appreciating the stuff that you have very much. And you probably don't need most of what you acquire. More stuff probably won't make you happier. Most of you have heard of Marie Kondo, speaking of happiness, author of the international bestseller, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. By now, does this spark joy is a humorous cultural catchphrase. But Kondo has spent her entire life thinking about our relationships to our things. And a quote from her, she says, the question of what you want to own is actually the question of how you want to live your life. Attachment to the past and fears concerning the future not only govern the way you select the things you own, but also represent the way you make choices in every aspect of your life including your relationships with people and your job. I believe that owning only what we love and what we need is the most natural condition, end quote. When the book came out, I tried to KonMari my house. I made progress, and then I bumped into the reality that I don't live alone, and most of the stuff in my house isn't mine to make decisions about. But I can control my own stuff. Last December, I decided that I would go one full year without shopping. This was before all the stores closed. <laughs> I decided that I would replace essential things that wore out, but I would use what I have for one full year to fully disconnect from that shopping and clutter spiral. Since then, I've noticed how much free stuff comes into all of our lives. Since December, I've received free socks, some sewing patterns that were handed down from a friend when she cleaned out her mother's house, a desktop Bluetooth speaker, three bags branded with different company logos, art prints, and a drawer organizer. I finally understand how buy-nothing groups work. It takes discipline to refuse free stuff, so I will be giving some of this away. But it just served to reinforce for me how much stuff all of us have how much stuff people can afford to just hand around as if it were meaningless. So during this pandemic, even before Amazon stopped shipping anything but essentials, I decided I was not going to buy anything because I didn't want to, to force our delivery drivers to go out and, sh and, hand and come to my house and bring me doodads that I didn't really need. We all make our own decisions about our stuff, what to buy, how to manage it, what we value. But managing our possessions always does take a certain amount of time and energy away from other things. This is why religious orders require their members to renounce worldly possessions and take vows of poverty. In the Bible, in the, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells his followers that materialism stands in the way of holiness. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, he said. If you wish to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, he tells the rich man. Buddhist monks 
renounce material attachments, believing that desire is the root of suffering and non-attachment is the path to enlightenment. We can become either a dedicated bodhisattva or a dedicated collector of football memorabilia. You use aren't monks. We don't take holy vows of poverty. We like our stuff, at least some of it. I am keeping the art prints and the quilt that my mother made. What items would you save in a house fire? What do refugees carry from their homelands? What items do you value? Now, some people would answer everything. Compulsive hoarding is the shadow side of consumerism. And thanks to some especially voyeuristic TV shows, more people now understand that hoarding is a mental illness that takes specific therapy to heal. Hoarders must be aware that they need help and be willing to cooperate. Families affected by hoarding share some characteristics of families affected by alcoholism, including secrecy, shame, and the awareness that the hoarder's attachment to their stuff is stronger than their attachment to their families and stronger for their, than their desire for help. But people who are not affected by hoarding still find that those toys collected during years of abundance now create great burdens for them and their children. A lifetime of collecting, shopping, and inheriting creates a huge chore when it's time to downsize, move, or make a lifestyle change. Jerry Larkin, a Zen Buddhist priest from Michigan, addressed this in her book, Stumbling Towards Enlightenment, while she was writing about the Zen view of death. She writes, quote, Spiritual practice includes being responsible to the people in the world around us. Leaving a home and paperwork in shambles can be an act of extraordinary selfishness. Not only do your loved ones face mourning the loss of you, they also have to clean up after you. So do the practical work and make the decisions that have to be made. None of us lasts forever and death takes many of us by surprise. Get your finances straightened out and know 20 is not too young and figure out who gets what after you are gone so that nobody ends up fighting over your book collection. If you have the energy, a massive garage sale is a great way to clear things out as are donations to homeless shelters and local nonprofit organizations. The point is to get rid of the stuff you can while you can. It's not especially useful advice this week while Goodwill is closed and nobody's going to garage sales, but I think the message holds. Manage your stuff while you can. This is hard for a lot of people. Confronting your possessions also sometimes means confronting the stage of life that you're in. As people age and downsize their homes, they might grieve for the days when the children played with toys that are now in the garage. But clinging to the relics of a previous life stage can keep you out of the joy of now. Are you trying to deepen your spirituality through meditation? Or are you trying to get in shape? Is there a room in your house filled with stuff you don't need? If there is, clearing it out could give you a private yoga studio or a meditation room. Reducing clutter reduces stress, and that has benefits for everyone. But when does our stuff become a moral issue? When does our relationship with possessions cross the line from being a personal decision about how we want to live 
to one with ethical and spiritual implications. Our UU principles actually speak to this. The first principle, respect for the worth and dignity of every person, applies whenever people share living space. We respect each other's worth and dignity by ensuring that our relationship with stuff doesn't diminish someone else who has a right to live peacefully in the same home. What's mine is mine and what's yours is mine doesn't respect that person's dignity. Disposing of other people's things, filling up someone else's room or closet with your overflow, or endangering others' health and safety with your stuff violates this principle. Children who grow up in hoarded homes, who are unable to cook meals, around unsecured gun collections, or with parents who buy electronics with the grocery money, learn that they are less important than stuff. Making space for your spouse's memorabilia connection, even if you don't like the team or the band, honors their place in your shared home. The second principle, justice, equity, and compassion in human relations, and the sixth principle, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all, should influence what we buy. There are many varying perspectives about what is ethical consumerism. But we can ask ourselves whether the things that we buy reflect our values. We can ask with every purchase if we are comfortable with who is profiting from this. Your purchase of a Christmas gift might help a local business in your community. It might sustain your local economy. But was that item made with sweatshop or slave labor? There may be no way to know. But these are questions we can ask ourselves anytime we acquire things. Compassion in human relations also means showing compassion for those with the mental illness of hoarding, while also being mindful of its impact on others. Someone with the illness of alcoholism can't be allowed to drive drunk and endanger other people. Someone with a hoarding disorder may endanger family members, pets, or neighbors, and it might be necessary for someone else to intervene. The seventh principle, respect for the interdependent web of life of which we are a part, usually refers to the environment. Overconsumption has devastating effects on our planet. If everyone on Earth lived as 21st century Americans do, we would need four full planet Earths to support that consumption. We've only got one. Reduce, reuse, recycle, and refuse preserves those resources for future generations. And we all, I think we all know this. I think most of us do this on a daily basis. Another perspective on that principle is that the interdependent web of life also includes the, the generations that surround us. I've helped several people move during big life transitions. The more attached the person is to every single piece of their stuff, and the less time they've spent thinking about what they value, the more stressful the move becomes, and the more strained their family relationships can become as a result. One very difficult common task for senior movers is helping their clients understand that their family members can't or don't want to absorb their entire life history and object form. They don't have room in their house or in their life for every single thing that their the previous generations valued. So as you pare down your stuff, don't force your loved ones to carry the, ver the burden of the self that you've left behind. If you leave your childhood toys in your parents' house, maybe that's space that they could use. 
if you're younger and your loved ones are downsizing, can you help haul the boxes out of the garage? Can you help them sell unneeded items to bring them in some extra cash? Can you manage your own stuff before you need someone to help you? Can you help someone else who's having difficulty with that? These actions create a lot of goodwill, pardon the pun. <laughs> They're actually really helpful. You can reaffirm your community, you can help other people get what they need, and ease a transition for somebody going through it. We can own our things, or they can own us. We don't need to be minimalists to see the wisdom in the words of early American Unitarian Henry David Thoreau. Man is rich in proportion to the number of things he can afford to let alone. Thank you. <laughs>